You're listening to a sermon on the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Hang around after the message for more information about Mission Ridge Church. Sermon notes for this message or any of our other messages can be found through our website, missionridge.church. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy. Family Feud. We are, like Rob said, the last, it's almost the last third of Genesis here that we're going to cover over the next nine weeks, I believe. Um, and we've, we've covered previously the first two-thirds of Genesis uh, in three different series. Uh, we started off back in 2020, pre-pandemic. We weren't even streaming, so the only place you can find that is on the podcast. You can only hear us, which is the best way to intake sermons at Mission Ridge. Um, so anyway, we, we went through Genesis 1 through 11 in a sermon called In the Beginning God. Uh, and in that first series, we, uh, we covered that, you know, this first through first 11 chapters of Genesis was allegorical in nature. It's an epic poem. We learned to look at it not as a textbook, but as this like different sort of uh, literature structure, right? And we learned that there was lots of reoccurring themes and patterns in these stories. And so if you're interested in that, go back and listen to it. Uh, I'm not going to preach the entire series as an intro. That would be silly. Uh, But we learned these patterns and themes. And we, we learned that the kind of the big white hot why, if you will, of that series of the first 11 chapters of the Bible is it tells us what God's character is. It tells us what God's design for humanity is and design for the world was. And it explains what happens with the disruption of that design and what happens when that, that gets out of order. And, and it kind of sets the stage of God trying to bring peace order back into the chaos that got introduced into the world. So that was the first series. And then our second series, we, we started, we picked it up with the story of Abraham. We called that one the partner that God pursues. We saw that there's this shift in, in style. It goes into more of a historical record-like story. If you're reading Genesis, it, it, there's a distinct shift between 11 and 12. There's still allegorical elements though, and there's still patterns and repetition and we learned that this, this section of the story follows Abraham and the promise that God gives him that he's going to birth this great nation that God's going to partner with. And it follows Abraham's family as that starts the drama and the dynamics as that starts to get established. We learned a little bit about that, this growth of Abraham as God partners with him to return back to his design. And then the last one that we did last year, we got back into it. We, uh, we called that one a legacy continued and we picked up with Isaac and Jacob. Uh, Isaac being Abraham's son and Jacob being Isaac's, one of Isaac's sons. And we saw that Isaac then becomes the patriarch and we saw these patterns continue. We kept seeing more of these patterns. All of Genesis is just dense with patterns and retelling of stories that just play out over and over and over again in cycles that we're supposed to learn from. Mistakes are repeated. There were some lessons learned, hopefully. We saw that God works with flawed people in this. The, the story kind of shifts real quick from Isaac to Jacob as being the focal point. And we, we spent most of that series on Jacob. And Jacob and Esau, the two brothers, and Jacob steals the blessing. This drama unfolds. Jacob runs off all, all over the country, running away. We saw that Jacob has this passion, this chutzpah, if you will, 
And God likes to partner with that. He says, I can, I can work with that. But we also saw that Jacob has these character flaws that kind of need to get ironed out. And we finished that series previously on, right? The seasoned recap. Uh, we finished with Jacob reuniting with Esau, his brother that he had stolen the blessing from. And he's really worried. And they come together and they have this, this unlikely reunite, you know, re, reuniting together and getting back together. And it's, it, and it's pleasant and peaceful. It's not what Jacob was expecting. Esau forgives him. And it looks like things are taking a turn for the better. It looks like Jacob's turned himself around and now can be a model of positive values and teach what it means to be in relationship with God. Jacob's got it figured out, right? Or maybe, maybe not. Because the very next chapter, Genesis 34, is where we pick up for this series. And this, initially I was going to skip it. I was like, wait, this isn't to do with Jacob. And then I realized, no, this is very, very necessary. And Genesis 34, I'm going to give you a warning. This is a little topical disclaimer. This is a hard story. This is not a pleasant story. That, you know, there's those stories in the Bible that never get talked about. This is one of them. Uh, we get to talk about Dinah and Shechem and the, the disaster that unfolds there. But there, there's important lessons that we need to learn from this story. So we're going to dive right into the text here. <clears throat> We're going to read through most of this. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of the area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing until they came home. Then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done had an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give, him to, give, give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like. I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons re replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all of your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Now I'm going to skip over 18 through 24. We'll condense this a little bit. And what happens there is Shechem convinces the city. He goes back to the city and convinces them to get circumcised, which is a hard sell in my mind. That's not like, hey guys, I want to get married. And you guys, go, mm, 
but they do it, which is wild. Uh, they're, they're like, yeah, let's, yeehaw. It's crazy. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, some of the translations say that this is where the pain is the worst. I don't know, I don't know about that. Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all of the wealth and all of their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites, excuse me, to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. And if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? End of the story. Ends with a question. No resolution. This story sucks. Like this is what the heck did we just read? What a mess. That compared to like getting back together with his brother and it's like a happy story, right? And everybody's like reunited, the prodigal returns. Compare that to, and then, then they go off to, what the heck? What questions does this raise? What questions does this raise? What problems are in this story? The first one here that I come across here is why does Jacob wait? Right? As, you're, as, like, as we're reading these stories in Genesis, the problems attract our attention to things we should notice. Why does Jacob wait? It says, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing until they came home. Does that sound like a father to you? I'm not a dad, but if my, if something happened to my sister, like I have guns, there will, things will go down quickly. There will be no waiting. I'm impulsive. This does not sound like Jacob. Jacob's impulsive. What the heck? And, and, and the text emphasizes that it's his daughter. How many times did it say the Dinah, the daughter of Jacob or Jacob's daughter, Dinah, it goes out of its way over and over and over to tell us that this is Jacob's daughter. There should be some sort of relationship here. There should be a connection here and we don't see it play out. And the brothers are the furious ones, right? They come in from the fields and they're shocked and furious. So at least somebody is. So first question should make us think, huh? Second one is why are the sons negotiating? That's the father's, that's the father's job. Shechem's dad, Hamor comes out. He does the negotiating for him. Shechem's involved, but he's, he's there. Jacob's there initially, but then he just kind of disappears from the story until the end when he's like, what, what, you brought trouble on me. Why are the sons negotiating? Why is Jacob not doing his part here? Third, third question that stands out. Why did Jacob not stop his sons? Because if, he, if he's there listening like, and seeing what's going on, like this is Jacob, the, the trickster, the guy who pulled the wool over Laban's eyes and, and pulled the wool over Isaac's like This is the guy that, with the silver tongue, the heel grabber. What, you telling me that he didn't see what his kids were doing? 
Why doesn't he stop them? These questions kind of point us to things that we should pull out of this story. First one that we're going to pull out is this story mirrors how Laban tricks Jacob. And it mirrors, which that story mirrored how Jacob tricked Isaac. Repeating stories through the generations. Because we should ask ourselves, where have I heard this before? Right? That's a good question. Where have I heard this before? Because in this story, we get someone loves a woman. And then a deal is made deceitfully. Goes out of its way. It's the same word in the Hebrew, deceitfully. They spoke deceitfully. The same way that Laban spoke deceitfully. The same way that Jacob spoke deceitfully. Deceived. It's all the same word there. And then there's this, this not being able to make a marriage deal because of some normal custom, right? Like in, in this story, it says, we can't do such a thing. We can't marry our sister to somebody who's not circumcised. That would break our normal custom. In the Laban story, previously when Jacob gets tricked by Laban in the marriage, Laban's like, no, we, it's, it's not what we do to give away the younger before the older, right? These, these stories are being interconnected. The author of Genesis is saying, no, 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 you guys need to see the parallels, But it's more than just this that we need to pull out of the story. It's not just like, oh, okay, same repeated mistakes. That's a good lesson, but there's more to this. There's more to this story. See, what we see here is Jacob is playing favorites again. Jacob has a favorite wife, Rachel, and a less favorite wife, Leah. <clears throat> see, the text emphasizes Dinah's mother. I think it's a couple slides forward here, Rob. Uh, it emphasizes Dinah's mother. Now, the only time, the, and, and say what you will about it, but the only time the, the Old Testament for sure is going to bring up women is when they're important because that's just, how they, that's just how their society worked, right? If they're important, if they're necessary to the story. So to bring up Dinah's mother in how they introduced her, it's drawing our attention to her, that that's Jacob's unfavored wife. The next thing that points us towards this Jacob of playing favorites is that the sons are taking the role of the father. We see this three different times in the text easily. So my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Now in the Hebrew, your is more like y'alls. It's plural. They're, they put like a, a dot thing on there and that makes it all y'alls. All y'alls daughter. It's only Jacob's daughter. How many times did it say Jacob's daughter, right? Over and over and over and over. But it, it, the sons, Hamor is talking and it's the sons. He's including them in like, this is your daughter too. Jacob's out of the picture. The next one is, it says, we'll take our sister and go. Jacob's completely like, he's not even this, it's her sister, not, not even a daughter. Like, we'll take our sister and go. And then the third one is right at the very end where it says, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? If, if Jacob was actually involved in Dinah's life here in this. And, and there was this connection here. If, if I was talking, like, if I was talking to my dad in this situation, which would be very strange, but if I was talking to my dad in this situation, I'd be like, shouldn't, uh, are you going to let your daughter be treated like a prostitute? Like, are you going to let that happen, Jacob? But no, it's once again, our sister. They're taking ownership. Jacob is taking, for, he's, it's, it's pointing towards this favoritism and unfavoritism that has plagued their family, apparently. 
This is important, and this will continue to be important, this disconnection. The third thing that we should probably draw from this story is that Jacob's normal method of dealing with conflict is to run. He tricks his dad, tricks his brother and runs away. He tricks his uncle, gets scared and runs away. He sweet talks his brother and, you know, makes up in the previous chapter right before, you know, happy family reunion. But then his brother had said like, hey, come with me back to over to here. I forget where the place was. And, and Jacob's like, no, 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 no. It'll be too fast. We got women and children. We can't go with you. We'll just wait behind. We'll catch up. Right? And then and, and his older brother Esau says, well, I'll leave some guys with you. No, no, no. Let me find favor in the eyes of you. Like, we'll, we'll catch up. And then he immediately takes like the opposite direction, which doesn't really make a lot of sense. But I, Jacob's, I don't know. He's, he's like, maybe, maybe Jacob's thinking, oh man, the hammer's still going to drop at some point. He's not really believing that Esau's forgiven him. I don't know. But it seems like his standard method of conflict resolution is to run away. He probably, I'm guessing, if we see all of these big scenarios, like when you, the way you act when things are tough and big and you have to make split second, split second decisions, that probably is how you're going to play things out in your, the smaller things in your life, right? That's your standard, how you just normally do stuff. So I'm guessing that Jacob probably avoids most conflict in his family. Like the kids are arguing and he's just like the dad that goes and like hides in his man cave or man tent, I guess his man Sukkot. He's like, I'm going to go, I'm going to go wash the sheep or something. Give the sheep oil change. I don't know, whatever that is, a tune up Uh, by ignoring or avoiding. I think that's probably what we see with Jacob. And this pattern of behavior, it leads to, it leads to disconnection in the family. We see this playing out in this story. It's all over the place. Once Once you see it, you're like, oh, Yeah, it's a terrible story, but it's because there's all of this dysfunction going on underneath things. And it led to not only an eye for an eye, but an eye for an entire city. Like coming off of Jesus's sermon on the Mount last last week and last series, it's kind of stark contrast there, the difference. And this this disconnection, easy for me to say, mixed with playing favorites will be important as we continue through this last bit of Genesis. It's going to be real important next week when Rob's talking. Uh, He's going to cover where we are introduced to Joseph and his brothers and the the dysfunction there. This disconnection is going to have a, a huge role in this story. This is setting the stage. But we have one more story before we move into the rest of the series. One more story that I want to cover today. It's real quick here. And it sets the stage for the rest of what happens in Genesis. I think it gives us a little bit more insight into Jacob. Genesis 35, 1 through 15. This is kind of the abbreviated version here. Uh, God tells Jacob to go settle in Bethel. And he protects them from their neighbors. Because remember, uh, Jacob was like, uh, you brought trouble on me and they're going to attack us. It's me, 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 me in that section, by the way. You would count how many times he says like me and my people and I, and it's all very, 
What about the rest of the family? It's just me. Just me, Jacob. Very self-centered. But God protects them from the neighbors. So God is faithful. He's like, all right, let's put this back together again. Let's get the wheels back on the bus. God tells them to go to Bethel. And then he changes Jacob's name to Israel again. This is the second time that God does that. And then he reaffirms the promise of Abraham. And then Jacob sets up a stone pillar and he pours a drink offering, which is something that his fathers had done before him. We see Isaac do that. We see Abraham do that. But there's something interesting there. He he doesn't call upon the name of the Lord like Isaac and Abraham did. So there's something there to go find. I'm not going to flesh it out today, but you can go look at it and you can go figure it out because it's kind of cool. It's worth pondering. But we pick up the story in, in verse 16. So it says, they moved on from Bethel while they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty. Rachel, his favorite wife. And as she was having great difficulty in childbirth, the midwife said to her, don't despair for you have another son. As she breathed her last, for she was dying, she named her son Ben-Onai. It translates to son of my sorrow or, or son of my strength maybe, but son of my sorrow. But his father named him Benjamin, son of my right hand. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Over her tomb, Jacob set up a pillar, and to this day, that pillar marks Rachel's tomb. His favored, this, this, the, this wife that he loved dearly dies in childbirth, giving birth to her second, the second one that she's, she's had. She has Joseph and Benjamin. She names him son of my sorrow and Jacob doesn't want, and he's not having that son of my right hand. That's his, the right hand is the favored hand, the son of my, like my second in, second in command kind of. Son of my, Rachel is his favorite. Son of my favorite. And now we're going we're gonna to fast forward to the end of Jacob's life when he's talking to Joseph in Genesis 48. As an old man filled with regret, I think of the movie Inception when I say that. (laughs) But Jacob is is telling this story. He regales this quickly to Joseph as part of a a longer passage that we'll get to later on. He says, as I was returning to Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan while we were still on the way, a little distance from Ephrath. So I buried her there beside the road of Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Now this, to my sorrow, to my sorrow, uh, can be read as uh, to my fault or because of me, Rachel died. To my fault. For whatever reason, Jacob is blaming himself years later. Decades later, he's blaming himself for the death of Rachel. Why might that be? Well, there was this story that happened a little bit before Shechem, a little bit before the reunion, right before that, in Genesis 31, where Jacob and his family, they've, they've tricked Laban and they're going to flee. They're going to run away. They're running away. And so they're, you can look at the map. They made it a long way. And then Laban catches them. And Laban's mad because somebody took his idols, Somebody took his gods. They stole the little figurines. And Laban's mad about that. And so he chased him down. 
And then they catches him and he's talking to him and, and they will pick up the conversation here. Jacob answers Laban because Laban had asked, why, why'd you run away? And he answers, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. You wouldn't want me to move away from home with the daughters. Like you would want to keep them. And so you take them and give me the boot. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Rachel had taken her family's gods with her, and then she's hiding them under her mat. And they don't find them. So they, Laban's like, I don't know where they went. And they never find them. I imagine at some point, Jacob probably figures this out. Jacob probably learns this. They're getting rid of all the gods when when when. God tells Jacob to go to Bethel. They get rid of all of like, they, they like clean house and they're like, that is unclean. You know, that's, that's an idol. That's an idol. They throw all that stuff out. So I imagine he finds out at some point. And then Rachel dies. And Jacob probably remembers that he said, that person shall not live. He's just spouted his mouth off and he's cursed his wife unknowingly. And then she dies. And so years later, when he's an old man, he's filled with this, this is my fault. And what we see with Jacob, as we'll see this through the rest of Genesis, Jacob is kind of this broken guy. He was this guy that had all of this chutzpah, all of this passion and fire. He had all this potential. And then he's just kind of defeated by this. God changes his name twice. The first time they're wrestling and Jacob kind of prevails, he wins. And Jacob's name that, he changed, that God changes it to Israel is God prevails or God conquers, right? But you could also read that conquered God because especially in that context of that first time, like he's wrestling with him and Jacob wins. So it's almost like conquered God or prevails with God. The second time, it's right before Rachel is, dies in childbirth. And you can flip that around and you could, I like to think of it as the first time it's changed his name to conquer God. Like you got some chutzpah. And the second time it's God conquered. I got that from my friend, Marty. Marty says, eventually God breaks Jacob. And he loses the one thing that he cared about the most. Which brings us to our first implication for today. God wants to use your passion, but only if it's submitted to him. See, Jacob has this chutzpah. He has this passion. He's got this fire. He's willing to go and do things, and he's a mess. He does messy things. And obviously, he's not perfect. He's not a, obviously not the best dad in the world. He's got this favorite thing going on. But he's got this passion. But that's problematic when he goes wild with it. And he's cursing, just in, you know, he's cursing somebody that he has no idea or he's tricking people when it's unrestrained, when, he, when he's not dealing upright, when he's not being authentic, it's a problem. God wants to use your passion, but you have to, you have to use it his way. Because if you don't, then it's probably going to cost you anything that isn't aligned properly with God's order. God wants to use that passion, but only if you're going to submit it to him. 
And if you do that, then you avoid some of the issues, probably. If Jacob had submitted to God and, and, and not played favorites with his family, maybe. Or, or perhaps even this, if Jacob had just been authentic with his brother, right? This is the sobering one. If he had been authentic with his brother, he wouldn't have even been there in Shechem. None of that story would have played out. There'd have been an entire city that wouldn't have gotten killed. His daughter wouldn't have been raped. If he'd just gone with Esau, been authentic, been honest, as God was calling him to be. Brings us to our second implication. Perhaps the bigger one for today. Generational struggles, struggles. I'll be on the, that's the clip right there. Generational struggles are like weeds in your garden. Time, intentionality, and consistent effort are needed to address them. I cannot tell you how many times I've pulled all of the little weeds out of my flower beds this year. So many. I've pulled them all out because I'm OCD. I've got some perfectionistic tendencies. So I get them all, and somehow they come back. I don't know. I don't know how it happens. It's to keep me humble. I don't, I don't know. Drives me nuts. But these generational struggles are like those weeds that just keep coming back. The things, it's a bad penny. You can't get rid of them, right? It's like this. Nope, that's a bad one. I can't use that. And, and this is like, uh, for those of you that have gone through the, the Emotionally Healthy Leader Scazzaro's book, this is your shadow and your genogram. Understanding, like, my parents created who I am. My grandparents helped tie into this. And we see this in Jacob and, and Isaac and Abraham. Like, there's these patterns that we've seen through this. And we're seeing Abraham played favorites with Ishmael and Isaac, kind of. We see that, or at least Sarah did for sure. And then we see with Isaac, Isaac has a favorite. It's Esau and Jacob's the unfavored one. And it leads to Jacob doing dishonest things and, and tricking and all of this problem. And, and then Jacob does the exact same thing that his dad did and plays favorites. This generational struggle, this generational sin, if you will, this misalignment, this brokenness from God's order, these things that are not submitted to him, they lead to all these problems. And the only way to get rid of them is time and intentionality and consistent effort. They have to be exterminated with extreme prejudice is what I said. That's, what I, that's how I treat my weeds. Extreme prejudice. You have to identify the problems that have been handed to you, right? This is your, this is your genogram. This is understanding. This is me looking at the genogram when I fill it out, which is like a, a reverse family tree, right? And I look at it and I'm like, okay, so four out of four of my grandparents were all perfectionists. Oh, okay, that's fine. I don't know where I got that from. No clue, no clue. Uh, sarcasm. <laughs> I'm very aware of where all of that came from. All four grandparents. I thought it was three out of four until recently, and then my mom enlightened me and was like, no, of course your grandfather was a perfectionist. Don't you remember weed whacking under the fences? They had to be perfect. So the first is identify. You have to identify those things. And this takes, this, like, I don't care how self-aware you are. I'm pretty self-aware. Well, like, 
toot my own horn here. I'm pretty self-aware. I still need other people to help. Like my mom needed to point this out because I was not aware of this. Like I didn't see that one in my grandpa. It was like, of course, we would weed under the fences perfectly. That's the only way to do it. Duh. Blind spot much? You have to have other people to help you see this. It doesn't matter how self-aware you are. You have to have other people help you identify these things. This is community. Second thing is you got to do the work. So once you've identified it, you got to do the work. I've, I've identified that my family likes to be workaholics. That's, that's a big thing in mine. And so I've had to do the work to be like, nope, I'm going to brute force my way into doing Sabbath. And I'm going to develop that habit. And I'm going to learn how to rest. And it's a struggle and it's hard work. It's like pulling those weeds out. You got to pull them all out. And then lastly, you have to maintain or intentionally and methodically make sure that they are not creeping back in. I have to continually make sure that I'm continuing to do Sabbath and not getting into a workaholic sort of pattern. Got to make sure that, that sin isn't creeping back in, that those problems, that the favoritism maybe in Jacob's story isn't creeping back in that the anger isn't creeping back in, whatever, whatever yours might be, that it's not going to creep back in. And those things come back with different flavors. If I've learned anything, it's that. Like, oh, workaholic, that comes back with a different looking face. So I've gotten good at it over here, and all of a sudden it pops up in a different spot, looking a little different. And I can't tell if it's a different color because I'm colorblind, but it's probably a different color. Who knows? It might be green and yellow, but I don't, I don't know. They come back. So you have to maintain this. I'll tell you this, doing the work, doing this, identifying these problems, making an effort to, to improve and grow, and then upkeeping them, it leaves a better inheritance for those that come after you. It leaves a better inheritance for your kids. It leaves a better inheritance for the people that you're discipling. For those of us that don't have kids, I got beta fish. I'm leaving a better inheritance for them. <laughs> Cleaner water? I don't know. Uh, but the people that I'm discipling, like as I, as I remove these generational problems, as, as I work through these and I bring them along and they get to see this, it leaves a better inheritance for them. And for my peers, it leaves a better inheritance for them because it's the same thing. They get to see this. They get to see me working through that. They get to help me work through some of these things. And it, it shows them that there's better things. I've, I, I, I was pondering this a little bit, and I'm not sure how this will, how this will play out here. But uh, I've noticed, and Rob kind of pointed it out, like I've got a lot of friends that have had in, in my late 20s that got married at some point. They were either older than me or they got married young. And then they've gotten divorced. And that's kind of affected how I view things. It's affected my outlook, uh, whether I have a good eye, bad eye about marriage, maybe even. Um, but it, it's, it's kind of affected this. But then I've also got other friends that have fought through some really hard stuff in their marriage and worked through stuff like that. And so I have these two opposing sort of inputs, if you will, 
I've seen these people, I've seen the, the generational struggles, like they're coming from families of deep divorce, but they're going to work through and they're going to fight through it. And then I've got other ones where, no, they just, they, they didn't do it. They couldn't do it or whatever. And, and so, and, and I'm not really sure if there is resolution for me on that one yet, but I've, I've realized that I have these two opposing inputs on that that are butting heads and they're telling a story. And so that's kind of me on the, like, I'm not showing this. I'm receiving this from my peers. This is what this looks like. Generational struggles, they're like weeds in your garden. Time, intentionality, and consistent effort are needed to address them. We're going to see these, and spoiler alert, the rest of this story with Joseph and his brothers, we're going to see a lot of generational things kind of come to fruition, come to a head, and either get resolved or not. These generational things that are passed down through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and now on to Joseph and his brothers. Thanks for listening to the Mission Ridge Church Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and share if you enjoyed this message. Mission Ridge is a church focused on relational discipleship and located in Missoula, Montana. If you are in the Missoula area, we would love to have you come say hello. For more information about Mission Ridge, connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, or online at missionridge.church. If you would like to partner with us financially, you can give securely online at missionridge.church. We'll catch you on the flip side. Thanks for tuning in.